returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Oh, I'm sorry, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. Father, as we place ourselves underneath the authority of your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would convict and move us to reveal to us, Lord, uh, what it is that we would be harboring in our hearts that is not of you. I pray that you would grow us in knowledge of you this morning as we look into your word, that you would give Adam wisdom, and um, Lord, that you would just illumine our hearts. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. This morning, as we continue through Luke chapter 4, I want us to consider... How Jesus' obedience establishes before God righteousness that is before God and makes the gospel announcement a reality. Again, last week we considered temptation and how temptation is working, how it seeks to be crafty and deceitful to cause one to doubt greater affirmations of the gospel and God's pronouncements upon His children by using circumstance to exploit our doubts. We saw that from the Father's proclamation upon the Son that is the reality that He is indeed the Son of God. And then Satan attacking with a question of, if you truly are the Son of God, then things would be quite different for you. And so we considered just how temptation works and seeks to exploit our weaknesses. But this morning, I want to stay with the temptation of our Lord, primarily focusing on the first one, that issue that pushes into Jesus' response of verse 4. But I want us to consider it again and how Jesus' obedience here in this text, and again, other temptations that we simply don't have access to that occurred over a 40-day period, but what we do have access to of what Luke is writing for us, how Jesus' obedience establishes righteousness before God and makes the gospel a reality. And when I say the gospel, what I'm referencing quite straightforward is the good news announcement that I trust each one in here has received. That good news that Jesus has overcome sin and temptation. 
Again, sometimes we can begin to think that as God provides to us the gospel in a happy formulation, that it is unto us what we call a covenant of grace. That simple proclamation that Jesus indeed has overcome sin and temptation. He has died and He has risen. He has ascended at the Father's right hand. And upon us, the hearer of that announcement is simply a call for faith and repentance. And we can think in some of those terms that gospel came easy. That announcement is made simply because Jesus came. But I want to draw our attention to Jesus overcoming sin and temptation and thereby making the gospel unto us a simple proclamation. In other words, it was not so simple for Jesus as it is for us to hear and to heed and to receive this proclamation by faith. So the good news reality from this text, as we will see together, is that Jesus indeed has overcome sin and temptation and that we then, by receiving and resting upon Him as He has offered to each of us this morning in the gospel, we can be assured upon a firm foundation of His obedience that indeed we have forgiveness with God. I want to use Calvin this morning as he handles this text as a way to get at the heart of what this temptation indeed is all about. Calvin writes this, and again, I want to use this as we march through the text. This addresses the text purposefully. Calvin writes, quote, Now, Since someone asks, how has Christ abolished sin? Drawing your attention to the how. How has Christ abolished sin? Banished the separation between us and God and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us. Again, this is the question of how. We, we, we receive, we hear these gospel benefits. We hear this proclamation of freedom, blood-bought through Christ. We hear it, but could we come back from its conclusion and look yet again at Luke 4, asking how did these benefits become our reality? How can such things as abolished sin, banished separation, and acquired righteousness, favorability with God and Him looking upon us so kindly? How is the question? How has Christ brought these benefits to us? Calvin continues, To this we can in general Reply, that He, Christ Jesus, has achieved this by the whole course of His obedience. Again, notice Calvin's language is, He has achieved this. It wasn't simply bestowed upon the Son. 
that he came, and thereby through simple humiliation of becoming man. That was it. The gospel is now proclaimed. But rather, as man, in humiliation, he achieved for us such things as the abolishment of sin, the banishment of separation, the acquiring of righteousness that renders God favorable and kindly toward us. He achieved, Calvin says, to this in general we can reply that He, Jesus Christ, has achieved this for us by the whole course of His obedience. Thus, In his very baptism also, in Matthew 3.15, which Luke doesn't record here in the baptismal situation, but if we look at the parallel in Matthew 3, I just simply cite for you as Calvin continues. Thus in his very baptism also, he asserted that he fulfilled a part of the righteousness in obediently carrying out his father's commandment. In short, from the time when he took on the form of a servant, he began to pay the price of liberation in order that he might redeem us. End quote. That is what I want to continue to consider this morning. That that is what our Lord's temptation is all about. I would say it has a double benefit, certainly. It it, it looks at justification and the achievement of our Lord's righteousness that then, through faith, is imputed to our account. And it has a secondary benefit as well, indeed, one of sanctification, a sanctifying grace that's provided. Indeed, how can we resist temptation? It has that dual benefit of seeing how our Lord, as a man, resisted temptation and its efforts. And it is a guide, therefore, for us of how indeed we give ourselves to word, prayer, and sacrament in overcoming sin and its temptations. So it has this double benefit. I want to draw our attention this morning to the first of what we'd say primary benefit of the covenant, and that is justification. Consider with me, jumping into the text of our Lord's temptation, with its focus upon answering the question, how has Christ done such marvelous deeds? Through His temptation and His accomplishment on our behalf. Consider the first aspect of Luke chapter 4 this morning as we work through verses 1 through 4. Consider the history behind the temptation. Jump into Luke 4 and I'll read 1 and 2. And Jesus, as you recall from last week, after his baptismal event, and Jesus, now full of the Holy Spirit that is empowered for obedience, returned from the Jordan and was led during those 40 days by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command command this stone to become bread. Now consider the historical setting here that I drew your attention to just briefly last week, back in verse 2, is the 40 days context. 
The specific mentioning of 40 days is important on a couple of levels. Consider uh, verse, if you look over at verse uh, 13, you'll notice one level why this is important. Again, as we look at temptation and the challenges we face with temptation each and every day. Verse 13, in reference to that 40 days situation and our Lord's hunger, that is going without food for 40 days. Look at verse 13. When the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him. And notice the comment there regarding ongoing temptation not only in the life of our Lord, but in every believer's life, until an opportune time. This is the nature of temptation. This is how it works. This is why Satan is referred to as a roaring lion, walking about, seeking whom he may devour. This picture of temptation comes in a dark hour. Most often, it seeks an opportune time to exploit our weaknesses, So in this 40 days, we see, indeed, temptation coming to our Lord in a very difficult context, one of great hunger and near starvation. That is, if we consider going, if you were to think right now of going without food for 40 days, many of you get exhausted during the preaching hour, that is, you know, a generous hour or so of of the temptation of listening to Satan during the sermon on how hungry you really are wanting to sneak out, or some of you pack snacks in your purse, and so on and so forth, of how, indeed, we can get through this hour of trial and temptation. But our Lord, indeed, is a, is a true human. We don't want to, to, to be unorthodox and wash it away. Well, he must have been just exercising deity and power to overcome it. So it's not really true. It's not really, it's kind of a, a hard thing to grasp. No, 40 days as a man without food in a wilderness experience. That would be eating a month from now in a couple of days. It's important on that opportune time to see how difficult the covenant for our Lord was in an hour of obedience of a month plus days of resisting. But it's also important, perhaps even more so as we look here, it's important to note the 40 days because by way of 40 days... It ushers us backward, or, or, or it brings the unity of the Bible into clarity as it draws us purposefully back into the original context of Israel's wilderness temptation. The question at that point, if we parallel as we look just briefly last week, 40 years, and now we see an obvious sign corresponding to 40 days. And we see the true Israelite, the beloved son, right in between. But yet the question still remains, as we draw our thoughts perhaps closer to what we're exploring this morning, the question is, yes, 40 days, it unites us to the original context of Israel's wilderness temptations, but the question is, for what purpose? Why? How purposeful is it that we see the 40 days and the 40 years? For what purpose is this parallelism standing out to us, crying out to us? Well, the answer is simply this, for justification, for the gospel. When we speak of justification, we simply mean that proclamation whereby one is declared before the Father, righteous, not having a righteousness of, their, of themselves or originating with Him, neither by merit nor effort, but by the obedience and performance of another. 
through faith that receives him, through faith that rests solely upon him, for all of him and all of his benefits are bestowed upon one through the vehicle of faith, through the vessel of faith, not through the energy of working, but by resting in the performance of another. That's why this is here, for the proclamation of the gospel to be a reality. Our Lord is entering into 40 days of temptation and trial. Again, if I could draw your, 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 your minds to this thought from Calvin. Now, this is the question we're answering. Since someone asks, indeed, we have all asked, at different hours and different trials and temptations in our own soul, we ask again and again as to the reality of this proclamation. We ask within our own soul, is it true? Is it even possible? Am I one of them? Do I rest in him? We ask and we ask. So Calvin says, let's be generous and say, since someone asks. Since someone asks, how though, how has Christ abolished my sin? How has he banished the separation between me and God? How has he acquired righteousness to render unto me God who is favorable and kindly? How has he done such? To this we can in general reply that he has achieved this for me by the whole course of his obedience. You see, 40 years and 40 days with an Israelite standing in between unites you to Israel's original response in the 40 days of wilderness. Do you remember what Israel's response was? And, and Moses frames it as the whole congregation, as that collective principle. Do you remember what it was? Israel's response to God's testing in 40 years of wilderness was one of grumbling and distrust. This is the situation on the ground in our Lord's trial, in our Lord's temptation. Turn, if you would, to Exodus 15. I'd like everyone, if you could, if you have a text, to be able to go there so that we can kind of skip through Exodus 15 and 16, because that is what we're witnessing in Luke 4. We're seeing our Lord, who is retreading the ground of Israel. He is Israel's hope. He indeed is the hope of every sinner. That, that, that sin would be abolished. That separation would be banished. And that righteousness would be acquired for every sinner whose faith rests in and receives all of Christ alone. Back to Exodus 15 on Israel's response to God's testing, being one of grumbling and distrust. I just want to show you how it is being explained to us by Moses as he writes. Of course, um, Moses was there. So we can consider how Moses is writing on these events of what's taking place. Indeed, as we see um, the human component here at work in, a, in, in an hour of trial and, and testing and, and challenge. And, and how we see Luke 4 in parallelism to this text right here in the 40 years of wilderness. If you're there in Exodus 15, you already see the song of Moses, right? So in Exodus 15, you see this glorious text. 
where uh, Israel was just led out through the Exodus event in, in chapter 12. So you're coming out of this magnificent event and this wonderful outpouring of signs and wonders and provision and calling and, and upholding and deliverance, redemption. You have this wonderful situation that gives way in chapter 15 to the song of Moses. I'll just kind of briefly touch, touch um, base on 15. Uh, skip with me through. If you see verse 16, uh, we'll just pick up there and kind of move right through the text. Terror and dread fell upon them uh, because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. This glorious story of redemption. Uh, Verse 17, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. And, And look at this wonderful confessional statement. The Lord will reign forever and ever. Now fast forward through the text with me as we jump down to verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. Miriam sang, uh, uh, sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed graciously. The horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. So we see singing and proclamation, dancing and rejoicing at redemption here. It's the song we sang this morning uh, uh, that Pastor Dan led us through, the uh, Divine Warrior song, it, it, recounting these events. Then right after this tremendous deliverance, um, look at the humanness, beginning in verse 22 that shapes Luke 4. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. Then they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days, so so roughly three days after this event, and this wonderful jubilant dancing and rejoicing. They went three days later in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And he cried to the Lord. The Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. This is the Lord interacting with his delivered people. He is providing for them in this grumbling experience. He is beginning to teach them. He is beginning to instruct them. He is beginning to wean them on himself. He made for them in that place of grumbling a statute and a rule in his provision. There, and here's this word that joins us to Luke 4 as well, there he tested them. You remember the end of the temptation experience. Jesus says, you shall not test the Lord. In this trial period, there he tested them. Saying this, and and look at the provisional words of of this relationship. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God. If you will do that which is right in His eyes. Right? In contrast to your own. And if you'll give ear to His commandments. And you'll keep all of His statutes. This issue already being distinguished between relying on you and yourself at a very fundamental level, hunger and thirst, at a very human and fundamental to your being level, he's calling you to rely on him, not in theory, 
but in concrete reliance. This is how he's teaching Israel. He created an environment where the water was bitter. That's clear. They're there. But what is their response after deliverance and redemption? One of grumbling and distrust. He is testing them because you must transfer, not reliance upon yourself for sustenance, but rely on me if you will diligently listen to my voice over your own. If you'll do that which is right in my eyes, not your own. And if you'll give ear to my commandments and keep all of my statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord. And look how he speaks so kindly. Your healer. Move into chapter 16 with me if you would just so briefly as we see this shaping Luke 4 where our Lord stands. Then they came to Elam where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Verse 1, they set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt, and the whole congregation of the people of Israel, you see it there in your text, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Where are they located? In the wilderness. Where is our Lord in this chapter of Luke 4? In the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And then look at, look at how, uh, you know, sometimes we joke about how um, things are better the further we get away from them. You know? Uh, memories are always better uh, six or seven years later than they were when we were there and annoyed with all our family members, but now it's nostalgic. It, it's, it's that same concept, uh, what, um, you know, uh, reconstructionists we are as we look back on how the Lord was kind to us a few days ago. Um, verse 3, would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. At least there we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you've brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. That I may test them. Whether they will walk in my law or not. Where is our Lord in Luke 4? In the wilderness, what is he struggling with? Hunger. What is the test? Whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. Again, a Sabbath instructional word there. Six, Moses and Aaron to all the people of Israel. At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember your redemption. Don't forget it. It was the Lord who did it. I am your healer. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? Verse 8 grumbling. The Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against Him. What are we? Your grumbling. 
is not against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in a cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. You see, Israel's whole response in the wilderness as God's firstborn son was one of grumbling and distrust. In some, we would say, Israel's response to God was one of sinful disobedience. Now, from the historical setting of the 40 days and the 40 years and the grumbling Israelites in between, here in Luke 4 is the cusp, our Lord standing on the cusp of the wilderness. He is standing in the temptation for 40 days, recalling this event. I want to show you how we see that as we progress through the text, as we move from the historical setting that is parallel to the historical lesson that was to be learned. If you'll move then from Exodus to Deuteronomy 8. So move to, from uh, Exodus numbers into Deuteronomy. And look at Deuteronomy 8 to see the historical lesson that is being learned or is to be learned. If you're in Deuteronomy 8, I want to read verses 1 through 5, that again is the entire frame of Luke 4 that makes the gospel a reality. Verse 1, the whole commandment that I command you today, you should be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers, and you shall Remember, this is a word to Moses, and you recall at this point, Moses is writing to Israel near the end of his own life. He's writing to them, he will not, as you know, go into the promised land with them. And he is writing to them as they go to remember what the Lord has done for them. And in the remembrance of all the things he could bring out, all the instruction that he wants to give Israel as they go forward, he remembers, he reminds them of the manna incident where our Lord stands in Luke 4. Notice verse 2 of Deuteronomy 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart. Where is our Lord? Forty days. Where is He at? He's in the wilderness. And what is occurring? A test. To know what was in His heart. To know will He abide by the law or not. This is what the Lord is doing to Israel in Deuteronomy 8 as Moses refers to the lesson to be learned. He was testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. You see how Moses is drawing them specifically to this challenge of hunger and specifically to the provision and its, and its, its challenge to you at a very fundamental level. He provided you with the manna. Do you remember? He provided you with food, with the manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. And here is the lesson to be learned. This is what you must remember. This is what you must take away. This is what you must take with you into the land. This is what you must take with you in your heart. That man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. This is the challenge that Israel was to recall. This is the summary. This is the, the medicine. One, one that applies through the mind and in the heart and recalls that I actually don't live by bread alone. This is the cure to my grumbling. This is the cure to my sin. This is the cure to my distrust. To recall the lesson that I need God more than anything else. You see, Moses is writing once again at the end of his life, looking back on all of those years he spent with Israel through all of the multiple challenges, and he reminds them of the manna incident in order to ensure that they and you will never forget. Physical needs... And physical wants are important, right? We'd be naive to say anything else. If we were to say, oh, no, physical needs aren't that important, or, you know, I, I, I'm never bothered by them. My faith is never shaken. We would be, one, lying, and, and two, oversimplifying. Yet, fidelity to God is more important still. In 40 years, he was testing you. He was humbling you to know what was in your heart. He was testing you whether you would keep his commandments or not. He let you hunger. This is his work. And he fed you with manna. Why did he feed me with manna that my fathers didn't know, of which I never knew? He did so that you might know this, that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives truly by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Physical needs and wants are important as our Lord stands, hungering near starvation. Indeed, physical food is important to his sustenance, but fidelity to God is more important yet. 
If you would, then turn over back to Luke as now you see the backdrop. You see the lesson to be learned. And now we're back in Luke 4 where our Lord stands. If you go back to Luke 4 to see, for the last couple of moments of our time together, to see how this summarizes in Luke 4, making the gospel a reality. It's proclamation sure. And this is the summary truth or the lesson not to be forgotten that brings us to Luke 4. Here we find, as you recall, not just another firstborn son, another natural generation Israelite, but we find the beloved son, the son of humiliation, in whom the Father is well pleased. That is, he is without sin, standing in the same place of Israel. Here in this wilderness temptation, Jesus is closer to death than at any other time in his life except for the obvious, the crucifixion. Forty days of hunger, forty days of testing. And again, Calvin says, Now since someone asks, How has Christ abolished sin, banished the separation between us and God, and acquired righteousness to render God favorable and kindly toward us? To this we can in general reply that he has achieved this. Again, not simply had it bestowed upon him, but he has achieved this by the whole course of his obedience. Is that true? Look at the Lord's response of verse 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. And Jesus answered him. The whole manna incident is right here being retried. Verse 3, the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. You see, Jesus also remembered the manna incident. Undoubtedly, he was told as a young boy the entire incident as he is taught of Joseph and Mary. We see him when he's 12 years old appearing at the temple, and they were astounded at what he knew, how he answered with wisdom, how he applied the law, how he knew of the acts of previous redemption, how he knew of the promises of God to save his people. They were astounded. Undoubtedly, Jesus was told of this incident. He was told, as Moses would say, let each of them remember this takeaway, this lesson, that yes, physical needs and wants are important, but fidelity to God is more important still. Jesus, having studied the law, again, as we have access to it through Luke since he was 12 years old, to now he stands at 30 in the wilderness temptation. There is no doubt our Lord knew the manna incident well. And by faith, standing in your place, He entrusted Himself to the Father, recalling the lesson that Moses told Him to never forget. The man shall not live by bread alone. You see, physical needs, whether we're speaking here of our Lord or speaking of Israel 
or speaking of ourselves. Physical needs and wants are important. But fidelity to God is more important still. In this temptation experience, indeed, Jesus was tempted to provide for his own material needs. Forty days of hunger, starvation, the weakest he will be in his lifetime prior to the resurrection, or excuse me, the crucifixion event. This is not just something that simply went away for him. He was tempted to provide, fundamentally provide for his material needs outside of the will of God. This has a twofold aspect in conclusion. Someone will ask, how has Christ abolished my sin? How has he banished the separation I experience between God and myself? How is it so true and sure that he has acquired righteousness that is imputed to me, which renders God so favorable and kindly toward me? How is it that this has occurred? And in general, we reply on Luke 4, he has achieved this for you, beloved, by the whole course of his obedience. Where you have disobeyed, Christ has succeeded. Where you have shrunk in faith and doubt, Christ has rested and received. Where you doubt now, won't you once again look to Him? Does your faith rest upon Him? Are you receiving Him as He has offered to you in the gospel? That where indeed you have sought to forge your way ahead faithlessly, to provide for yourself at any cost, to not live by the word of God but neglect it, will you look yet again unto Christ as your Savior, as he who stood in your place, entered your wilderness humiliation, and emerged as faithful? Who not only succeeded in the covenant, but suffered its sanctions, that through faith, you might be forgiven. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truths of the gospel. We thank you for Jesus' obedience. Christ our Lord, we give you praise as our mediator between God and man. Paul tells us there is only one. There is only one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Christ Jesus. We praise you for your fulfillment of the covenant. We praise you for your obedience. We are lawbreakers. We are faithless. Yet you remain faithful to us in our weakness. We praise you for the proclamation of the gospel. That through your righteousness we can be forgiven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.